You know, I've noticed something about uh, church in Lexington in the fall uh, that uh, when UK loses a heartbreaker, church is full the next Sunday. Um, so glad you're here uh, in the same misery that I'm in today. Uh, luckily, yesterday uh, was um, I didn't I was distracted during the game. We uh, Jen and I graduated high school together, and we had our 20-year uh, high school reunion. And man, I had the time of my life last night. Um, I just need to tell you that. I just had so much fun. Um, let me pray. We'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for these folks. And, um, and Lord, I, I pray you would uh, anoint them with your spirit uh, now as they hear your word. And Lord, I pray you would anoint me as the preacher of your word. Lord, I pray you would uh, get me out of the way. Uh, Lord, that um, anything uh, that is not of you would uh, fall and uh, be blown away into nothing. Uh, but Lord, that what is of you uh, would take root and, uh, and Lord, cause a harvest uh, a thousandfold. Oh Lord, do this work among us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I had this picture of us having a book table here at the church. I've, I've thought about it a lot, actually. Um, I mean, plans aren't on the way if you're real excited about books. I, I still can't get over Amazon. It's just easier. Uh, but it, it, imagine we did have a book table. And imagine on it you saw a book that on the top it said, uh, The Woman God Uses or The Man God Uses. Who do you expect to be on the cover of a book that's a biography that's entitled the woman God uses or the man God uses? What do you, what do you think? Who, who would be on there? You'd expect a preacher. Uh, you'd expect a missionary, perhaps. Uh, maybe uh, an author uh, who has this extensive theological education. But what if that's not the case? What if what you see on the front of that book, the picture that you see uh, is a restaurant owner? What if the picture you see is a plumber? What if the picture you see is a restaurant owner? Because... Brothers and sisters, that's what's true about the Christian faith. But let me, let, me, let me keep your wheels turning of who might be on the front of a book that, that's a biography that's entitled The Woman or The Man God Uses. Um, you know, think about uh, back uh, with the abolishment of slavery in the West, both in Britain and in the U.S. Who, who did God use? Now, you could read in there, you can, find, uh, you can find preachers who stood up and preached against it. They really stood on the doctrine that all men were created, all men and women were created in the image of God. You could find those. But really, the people who were front and center of all of that were politicians. You had William Wilberforce uh, over in Britain, and then you had uh, the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, uh, here in the United States. Those were people that God used. Go back to this um, thing called redlining. If you don't know what redlining is, you, you can look it up. But real briefly, here's, all, here's what it is. In 1934, there, was this, uh, there were these laws that were enacted uh, here in our country uh, that really stood for the systematic denial of mortgages to non-white clients by banks based on race. And really, this whole idea of redlining still has its effects today. In fact, it's got real effects here in our very neighborhood. Uh, here in our neighborhood, just a few blocks uh, south of here, uh, there were some homes that were, uh, that were bought. Then they were flipped, and they were going to be sold to long-term residents here in our neighborhood at below market values. They'd received this grant money that enabled them to offer it at those prices. 
So they flipped all the houses. Uh, they were standing there. They were for sale. There were applications uh, that were to be had. And what they found is that no long-term residents applied to live in those houses. And they were shocked. Man, these were a great deal. It really makes sense financially. The problem was is that the long-term residents in our community have felt the effects of redlining for decades. And that's why they weren't applying to live in those homes, because they didn't trust banks. They were skeptical of them. And can't you see why? So, so what's needed for this whole issue? What, what was needed and what is needed today? Well, I, I know it's complicated, but I think it at least involves some bankers who are living out the gospel and not just pastors to get involved. See, you see how this takes imagination, don't you? See, you see, kingdom impact is really hard to measure in this way. You see how it's a lot easier to limit our imagination and our visions of the kingdom down to Bible study and churchy things. I listened to this Keller sermon this week. Tim Keller is a pastor uh, in, in New York City. You've been around for a while. I know it's shocking that I would listen to a Tim Keller sermon. But um, he, in this sermon, he tells this story. He tells a story about a woman who started coming to his church. And she, she was interested in Christianity, but she would, call, she would say that she wasn't a Christian. And Keller went to ask her, you know, what, what, why are you here? And she uh, responded by kind of listing off her education, kind of listing off her professional accomplishments. And man, he was really impressed. And then after listing all that off, she surprised him. And she said, "Uh, but I almost got fired. I made this huge mistake at work and and I should have been fired and I wasn't. And what had happened is that her, her, her supervisor found out about her big blunder. Her supervisor went to his supervisor and took the fall for it. He didn't tell her that it was her fault. He said, this was my fault, and he almost got fired. Well, the woman finds out that her boss uh, took the fall for her and took it on himself. And she went to him and said, uh, you know, well, why, did, why did you do this? Well, I wouldn't have done that for you. Why'd you do it for me? You know, and being a guy, he kind of gave short answers like, ah, no, it's not a big deal. You know, don't worry about it. Pay it forward. You know, being a woman, she didn't settle for that. And um, she needed something more specific from him. And finally, after kind of twisting his arm, he finally said, fine, I'm a Christian. And I believe that Jesus took the fall for me, even though he did nothing wrong. And now he's living his life through me. And she looked at Keller and she said, that man goes here to this church and that's why I'm here. So you see how this takes sacrifice, living in the kingdom, being used by God. You see how it takes your imagination to get rolling. It's not as simple as preaching sermons and leading Bible studies. And when we get to the book of Esther, it comes in and it shatters our expectation about the woman or the man that God uses. So you've got two main characters. You've got a man and a woman. You've got Mordecai and you've got Esther. And they're not clergy, by the way. Mordecai spends his whole life in the marketplace. Esther is nobility. Neither of them are prophets. Neither of them are priests. They've never been set aside for ordained service in God's, with, among God's people. But they are the ones that God uses in the book of Esther. 
In our text today, Esther 4, will show us some of the dynamics at play. Some of the dynamics at play in being used by God when you're not clergy. Some of the dynamics at play when you're living in dark days as they were and we are. So let's read Esther 4 together. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put sackcloth in ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury and for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathok went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai and Esther, they told, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. All right, so that's Esther 4. If you've not been with us uh, the last few weeks for Esther's 1, 2, and 3, let me summarize it real quick for you. Uh, the Jews, uh, they have been taken captive. They've been taken from uh, the promised land uh, in, in modern-day modern day Israel. And they've been taken captive over to Babylon, which is in present-day Iraq. And while they're in Babylon, uh, Babylon is defeated by Persia. Persia uh, takes it over, and Persia allows the Jews to go back to rebuild Jerusalem if they so desired. But not all of them left. Some of them stayed there. And Esther and Mordecai are two of the Jews who stayed and Persia, at the time of, uh, of Esther, was being ruled by a guy named Xerxes. Xerxes, through a long series of events, ends up marrying Esther. And Esther, when she's the queen here in, uh, he, he, here in uh, Persia, she's undercover. They don't know that she's also a Jew. 
And so you got both figures, Mordecai and Esther. They're a faulty character. They, they, they want to be social elites. They want to stand up and up with them, especially the king. So what they do over and over again in Esther's 1, 2, and 3 is that they compromise their identity as God's chosen people. There's a lot more Persia in them than there is Jew in them. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so the story turns right at the end of chapter 3, right where we ended last week. The story turns. The story turns when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man. And to do unto Haman was to do unto Xerxes. And everyone had always bowed down to Xerxes. So now everyone has to bow down to Haman. But Mordecai refuses to do so. He refuses to do so because he's a Jew. And when he refuses to do so, when he resists the idolatry of power that's represented in Haman, this totally goes against Mordecai's M.O. You see him compromising in all these different ways. He takes on this name of Mordecai that comes from the, 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 the Persian word Marduk. And Marduk is the lead god in the pagan pantheon of gods in Persia. You've got where Mordecai lives, he lives in the citadel. In other words, he lives in the inner part of the city as opposed to the fringes of the city in Susa, the capital of Persia, because the fringes is where all the rest of the Jews live. Oh, but not Mordecai. He's got to be in the center of the action. He's got to be more Persian than Jew. You also have Mordecai. He gives up Esther rather freely, his younger cousin who he's like a father to when they come through and take away the beautiful young virgins for the king to choose from for a queen. He doesn't resist. He just gives her up. So Mordecai, at the end of chapter 3, he'd come to this crossroads of faith where he can continue to compromise or he can resist the idolatry of power. And when you see him at the end of chapter 3 resisting the idolatry of power, you just have to wonder, is he going to be able to keep this up? And this is so unlike him to do this that surely he's going to, fall down real soon. I mean, he's got a lot of Persia still in him when he stands up and says, I'm a Jew. Haman's really powerful. It's got to be hard to continue to resist him. And we get to the beginning of chapter 4, and we, say that we see that he has kept up his resistance. In fact, he, tra- he goes from saying, I'm a Jew, to trading in his normal clothes for sackcloth and ashes. I know it doesn't sound like the ideal outfit. I didn't wear sackcloth and ashes in my 20-year reunion last night. But this was normal. This was normal if you're mourning and you're a Jew. It's common practice in the rest of the Old Testament that when something awful is happening to God's people, they put on sackcloth and they put ashes over their head. And they do it because the discomfort of the sackcloth, particularly to your more sensitive parts, if you know what I mean, uh, would remind you of the discomfort that you're feeling because of your painful experiences. It was meant to keep your mind off it. It was also meant to be this thing of public display where you're saying, I am mourning for what is happening to God's people. And Mordecai, man, does he make it public. We see in the text that he lets out this loud and bitter cry. We see in the text where he does this loud and bitter cry. And he does it in the king's gate. And the king's gate is the most public of places. So surely he's sealing his death sentence here. Esther, she hears about Mordecai, and she's distressed. She can't understand why he's acting a fool out there at the king's gate. But she doesn't know that Mordecai has stood up for the very first time and aligned himself as a Jew at the very risk of his own life. 
She doesn't know that there's a new Mordecai in town. See, the old Mordecai would have kept silent. The old Mordecai would have been continuing to gain favor and would have been doing whatever he could to maintain the favor he's already accumulated with the king and the other dignitaries. And what she's afraid of, the reason the text says she's distressed is because she thinks that Mordecai's going to throw all that away. And so she tries to shut him up. She tries to shut him up by sending a new set of clothes so that he quits making a fool of himself. And so she sends out her message, or Hathok. Hathok comes and says, hey, here's your thing of clothes. And Mordecai says, no thanks, but I need you to give a message back to the queen. I need you to tell the queen that all the Jews are going to be annihilated. And maybe through all these like really unjust things that have happened to you to get you into the place of power as the queen, maybe God's going to use all of that so that you might leverage the opportunity that you have to save the annihilation of the Jews. So the messenger goes back to Esther and tells her, and Esther immediately makes up this excuse. See, there's a law in Persia, and the law is that someone can only enter the king's presence if he or she is invited. If someone does enter the king's presence without this invitation, they're in danger of losing their life. You understand her fear, don't you? I mean, Xerxes isn't exactly known for his mercy. Remember what he did to Vashti. Vashti, when she didn't follow the king's wish, she was banished. But you know her fear on a personal level too, don't you? You know that we often make excuses out of fear that something good might actually happen. We fear that good is possible, and that's called cynicism. See, cynicism is this kind of cure-all for disappointment. Cynicism sells us this false bill of goods because it says that it's realism. But we're saying, hey, we've got real experiences of pain from the past that show us in really concrete ways that goodness is highly unlikely. See, Esther could do this. She could say, hey, if the king did this to Vashti, surely he could do that to me, if not even worse. And really, it's kind of hard to argue with. But Mordecai threatens Esther in verse 13. Do you see it? In verse 13, he says, do not think that just because you're in the king's palace that you're going to escape any more than all the other Jews. So just stop. Stop and think about Esther for just a moment. She's stuck really between a rock and a hard place, isn't she? Either she could waltz in to the king, uninvited, and risk her life, or she could risk being found out to be a Jew and be killed along with the rest of the Jews. And I'm not so sure that Mordecai wouldn't blow her cover. I mean, if he's standing out there in sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate, maybe he would rat her out. So it's really the moment of truth for Esther, in the same way that last week was a moment of truth for Mordecai. And right here at this moment in the text, in 4.13, her, Esther's two identities collide. She's either going to live into her Jewish name, her Jewish name is Hadassah, or she's going to be identified as one of God's people, or she's going to remain silent. She's going to be under the cover of being the Persian queen. 
in order to stay safe. But let's just pretend. Let's, let's just pretend that, 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 that Mordecai doesn't rat her out. Let's pretend that she keeps her Jewish identity hidden for the rest of her life. Let's pretend that the rest of the Jewish people are... Genocide happens to them just like Haman orders. And I think that would be a kind of death for Esther too. She's going to be in the palace and the palace is going to become this kind of prison and it's going to devour her because she's always going to be wondering, what if I would have taken Mordecai's advice? What if I would have approached Xerxes? Xerxes, wouldn't it have saved my people? So you see this place that she's in, don't you? If she wants to survive, she's going to have to die by playing it safe or by risking her life. So really the only way out of suffering for Esther is for her to choose suffering and go through it as opposed to trying to avoid it. And if she chooses it, she's going to open herself up. She's going to open herself up for pain, for heartache, for failure, and yes, even death. But the risk could also lead to joy. Could also lead to redemption. And that's where Mordecai shifts the motivation. He's got this threat in verse 13, and then he incentivizes her in verse 14. Look at it. Mordecai says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, here's what Mordecai is really saying. He's saying, Esther, God doesn't need you. But what if all these painful coincidences of you becoming the queen have all been set in place on purpose so that God might use you? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's really what he's saying in verse 14. And that's a pretty good hook, if you ask me. That's a good hook. Whether you're a missionary, whether you're a banker, whether you're a politician, and you hear the call to risk your reputation, you hear the call to even risk your life. And you want to answer it, not just to alleviate a need. You want to answer it not just to do the right thing, but you answer the call to risk your life because you see that it's good for you. See, that's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 23. He says, I do my ministry for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. I mean, to put it real bluntly, he's saying, yes, of course, I do ministry for the people I do ministry to. But I do it selfishly too because I want to share with them in the blessings of the gospel. I haven't moved on beyond experiencing the gospel for myself. And when I do ministry, I get to do that. So why would I quit? And so Esther's being incentivized by Mordecai to be used by God to preserve his people. And see, aren't we in the same spot? We're all being faced with this question. Are we going to live our lives comfortably and safely in our palaces where we can hide among our culture with its idols of materialism and power, its idols of family, or are we going to lay down our lives and experience the joy of being used by God? 
Which is it? Can you really say, if I perish, I perish? Can you really say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Now, I know it's pretty easy to get inspired. Uh, You look at Esther's example, you look at Mordecai's example, and you're like, yeah, I'm at that crossroads, pastor. I I, want to choose Jesus, even if it costs me everything. I want to be the one who has the privilege of being used by God. I'm all in on this one, pastor. September the 15th, 2019. Mark it down. Well, it's great. That's great. I'm excited if that's where you're at tonight. But let me warn you, it's going to wear off. Not going to take long. And that's because this is guilt-driven. It's, it's also possible to, to see yourself at a crossroads, mark down this date, September 15, 2019, and you overreact. You kind of keep your principles, and you move forward, and you become this obnoxious person who's really bold and outspoken about your faith. So what should you do? What should we do with Esther chapter 4? Well, we should see it as a signpost. See, don't you begin to smell Jesus in Esther 4? You see Esther identifying with her people. You see Esther coming under the condemnation of everyone else. You see Esther mediating before the king. And we're going to see her find favor with him. That's then imputed to the rest of her people. Huh. Jesus lived in a lot better palace than in Susa. He lived in the palace of heaven. And he came down to earth and he identified with his people. He took on their condemnation. He mediated on their behalf. And he did so much more than just risk his life. He gave his life. He, he, he went to the cross. He, he died. He made atonement for sins. And that's using our text as a signpost. And finding what Esther 4 is pointing to, it's pointing to Jesus. It's easy for those of us who are in the church, maybe been in the church for a long time, we hear this message of Jesus' death being for sinners, and we think it's for those who aren't Christians, that they need to hear it and believe it. But what if this message of Jesus' death for sinners being for those who are on the inside of the church, those who have believed for a long time, but we just need to apply his death and his resurrection in a different way. Where we see his death and his resurrection not just as a model for risking our lives to love others, but as actually the empowerment to pull it off. So what's this going to look like for you? What is, if I perish, I perish, going to look like for you? What would it look like for you to play it safe in the palace and risk nothing. What is it that you need to risk? Is it your reputation? Is it your job? Is it your view of family? See, Jesus requires you to die to what you hold dear so that you might be a benefit to others. For Esther, it was the palace. For Mordecai, 
it was his reputation. And brothers and sisters, we live in that palace. We care about our reputation too. And who knows that you've been put in the place you've been put on for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you that you are sovereign. And um, Lord, we end up in places that we're not real crazy about. Lord, that you are at work. Lord, that when um, we are at these crossroads, uh, we know that you neither leave us nor forsake us. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would be much more than a model of risk. Uh, but, Lord, you would be the one who empowers our risk. Do this for your glory. For, do this for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.